Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Carlo, God bless you. Thank you for being here with us. Good evening to you all. Thank you so much for joining me for part two of our webinar on, on Aquinas' Five Ways and Answering Atheism. So last week, if you weren't with us, uh, we covered, we did a little bit of an introduction, made some inter introductory comments on the five ways in general, and we looked at the first way and the second way. And we stretched our minds quite a bit, right? <laughs> Can I get an amen to that, you panelists there? I see a few faces returning. But as Father was saying, it's good to exercise those intellectual muscles, right? To do some intellectual calisthenics, as I like to call it. And today, tonight, uh, we're going to continue to do that, to look at ways three, four, and five. And once again, um, to keep in mind that the five ways, as Aquinas presents them in the Summa Theologiae, are summaries. So they presuppose a lot of metaphysical principles that are working in the background of the summaries themselves. These metaphysical principles, that which is actually driving the arguments as metaphysical demonstrations. And I tried my best last week to uh, draw out those metaphysical principles in the formal demonstrations that I presented in the handouts. And I tried my best to try to do what I could to explain those metaphysical principles in the limited time frame that I had. I will say this, that I do wish I had more time to sort of pitch our tent and camp out on those metaphysical principles to really flesh them out so that we can really communicate the idea that's in my mind into your mind and in my heart into your heart. Uh, but unfortunately, just given the circumstances of uh, these webinars, we just don't have that time to really camp out. So it's a blessing of social media that we have these videos archived, I assume, right, Andy? They will, they will be archived, along with the handouts so that you can go back over them over and over again, again, and it will and assimilate the material into your own thought process so that it can become one with you, so that it becomes uh, your own language, because it is a new language to speak of potency and act and essence and existence and substance and accidents and paraccidents and per se and all of that stuff, right? So it takes a little time to learn the language. With that said, speaking of the language of metaphysics, before we dive right into the third way, I would like to just very briefly uh, summarize or go over some of the essential terms that 
I used last week and I will be using tonight as well. So if you recall last week in the first way, the terms of potency and act or potentiality and actuality were very prominent in the first way of St. Thomas Aquinas, that way from motion, which is the reduction of potency to act, right? And we're like, what in the world does that mean? So it's, it's quite simple, actually. I mean, your average Joe in the pew can understand the fact that you have a rubber ball, it has the potential to become a lump of goo. You put it in the microwave, guess what? It actually becomes a lump of goo, right? It's as simple as that. Um, this microphone has the potential to be on this side of the podium rather than this side. Right now, it's actually on this side of the podium. It has the potential to be on that side of the podium. If I were to take the microphone and move it to this side, it would actually be on this side of the podium and potentially on the other side. Does that make sense? Okay. So potential potency just simply means the potential for some actuality. Actuality is when it actually is, as St. Thomas Aquinas uses in the first way. The piece of wood is potentially hot. When it becomes actually hot, it's no longer potentially hot because it's actually hot, but it is potentially cold. So that's potency act, potentiality actuality. And as we said, motion is the process of that potential being actualized, the progressive actualization of the potential. Okay, so that's act and potency. Another key descript distinction uh, and terminology that I'll be using this evening, and I did use last week, is essence and existence. Okay, so Essence refers to the whatness of something, what something is, that which determines something to be this kind of thing rather than some other kind of thing. So the essence of this thing I'm pointing to right now is a microphone. That's the whatness of it, right? But I also recognize that this thing I call a microphone actually exists. It's actually something rather than nothing. That it exists and has existence rather than nothing, that's what we mean by existence, right? It has an act of existence that distinguishes this object to be real, distinguishing it from something and from nothing. So existence makes it be. It makes it to be something rather than nothing. Essence is what the thing is. All right? Does that make sense? Kind of follow me so far? So one popular way of saying is that essence is what it is and existence is that it is. All right? That's kind of one popular way of putting it. So that's the distinction between essence and existence. Now this leads to the next uh, set of terms that I'll be using quite a bit tonight. And that is pair accidents and uh, something to have existence per accidents and something that has existence per se. All right. What in the world does that mean, right? Okay, so for something to have existence per accidents, that just simply means the thing is going to have existence from another and its essence and what it is is distinct 
from its existence. It doesn't have existence by nature. So think of a triangle, right? A triangle has three straight sides by, the, by virtue of what it is. Amen? Easy enough, right? Now, we would say that triangle has three straight sides per se of itself. It's, per se is Latin for of itself. That is three straight sides belongs to the essence, the wetness, the nature of a triangle. So you can't have a triangle without three straight sides, right? Now, if I have a red triangle, that the triangle is red, the redness, the triangle has the red color per accident. It doesn't belong to the nature or the essence of a triangle to be red, right? Because you can have a blue triangle, you can have a black triangle, you have a, red tri uh, a yellow triangle. So color is per accident. It doesn't belong to the essence of the thing. But three straight sides does belong to the essence of a triangle. So a triangle has three straight sides per se of itself, but a triangle is going to have color per accident, not of itself. It's the essence of what it is, is distinct from that color. It's, per accident, you know, accidents has to do with something happen, happening to fall upon, right? To fall down upon by accident, right? Doesn't belong essentially to the thing. So when I speak in the remaining ways of three, four, and five, when I speak of something, when Aquinas speaks of something as having existence per se, that means the thing would have existence of its very nature. That its nature would be to be. When we speak of something as having existence per accidents, what Aquinas means is that there is a distinction between what the thing is and that it is. A distinction between its essence and its active existence that distinguishes it from nothing that are conjoined together in one thing. So to have existence per accident means the act of existence does not belong to the nature of the thing. It's distinct from the nature of the thing. So once again, for something to have existence per se, that means nature and existence are identical. They're one and the same thing. The thing exists by virtue of its nature. It belongs to its nature to exist. Its essence and existence are identical. By the way, I'm saying all the same stuff in different ways, right? Okay. For something to have existence per accidents, that means the essence and the nature are distinct but conjoined. It doesn't belong to its nature. It's not essential to its nature. A triangle has three straight sides by its essence, but it doesn't have color by its essence. Just as a triangle has three straight sides per se, something that exists by nature has existence per se. Just as a triangle has color per accidents, something that exists per accident, something that has existence per accidents is like the triangle and the color. Does that make sense? Y'all follow me there? Okay. So existence per se for a thing is like triangle having three straight sides. Think of that analogy, right? Existence per accidents. Think triangle being red. Doesn't belong to its nature. Does that help? All right. So 
These are some very important terms as we go through the remaining ways, and they're also important for ways one and two. So let's dive right in, lest I run out of time. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with Aquinas' third way, from possibility and necessity. Whoa, all of a sudden it's like, oh man, some more metaphysical terminology, right? Come on, here we go. All right, so but this is what Aquinas' starting point is, and I'll explain it. Aquinas says this, the third way is taken from possibility and necessity and runs thus. We find in nature things that are possible to be and possible not to be. Since they are found to be generated, that is coming into being, and to corrupt. And consequently, they are possible to be and not to be. So what does Aquinas mean? What is Aquinas thinking in his mind when he speaks of a possible being and a necessary being? Now, let me start off by saying what he, does, what he is not referring to. Some Thomistic scholars will say that when Aquinas speaks of a possible being, he's referring to that type of being that doesn't have existence by nature, that its essence and existence are distinct, and that a necessary being automatically is a being whose essence and existence are identical, and that would be God, basically. But Aquinas' understanding of a possible being and a necessary being is actually more nuanced than that. Oh yeah, and by the way, a great article uh, that I really enjoyed for the third way, if you have the handout, for the introduction to this two-port webinar. I gave you a list of resources and specifically journal articles for each of the ways. One of the journal articles I really liked was by Kevin O'Conley, I think it was, Thomas Kevin O'Conley, and uh, the basis of the third way. And he draws this out very clearly. A possible being is basically a being whose nature has a tendency a tendency that belongs to the essence of the thing, a tendency that belongs to the nature of the thing to go out of existence. There's something to the nature of the thing that makes it transitory, that makes it the fact that it's going to eventually go out of existence, all right? By virtue of its nature, it's incapable of persisting indefinitely. And fundamentally, what Aquinas has in mind is such a being, a possible being, is a being that's a composite of matter and form. That oak tree that Father Hezekiah was talking about, right? It has some material stuff that it's made out of. But the fact that the matter is shaped and structured in the way that it's a tree rather than a rabbit or a dog or a frog, tells me it has a form that's informing the matter to make it be what it's meant to be. But anything that has a form-matter composite, anything that is a form-matter composite, by virtue of its very nature, it's subject to corrupting. Because anything that's a material being is subject to corruption. So it's possible, the possibility is Inherent in the nature of the thing, it has a tendency to go out of existence given enough time. For whatever is composed can be decomposed, right? Can decompose. 
So a possible being has, there's something to its nature that doesn't allow it to persist indefinitely. And Aquinas has in mind here a corruptible being. Now for Aquinas, a necessary being is a being that's not like the possible being. A necessary being is a being that, given its nature, there's nothing there in its nature that would make it have to go out of existence. Like for the corruptible beings in the form, matter, composite, which can decompose, right? And any material being is subject to corruption. But a necessary being, there's nothing to its essence, there's nothing to its nature that's going to make it eventually go out of existence. What Aquinas has in mind here is an incorruptible being. That if it exists, it cannot not exist. If it exists, once it exists, it's always going to exist. It doesn't have any inherent tendency to go out of existence, you see? Because it belongs to its very nature to not go out of existence, if it in fact does exist. And for Aquinas, this sort of necessary being could be a being that receives existence from outside of itself, and that would be what we commonly refer to as a creature, right? Something that is dependent upon God. Or a necessary being, uh, and that, that type of being, that necessary being would be like an angel, an incorruptible being, an incorporeal being. Or the necessary being could have existence by its very nature. Think triangle having three straight sides. A necessary being can have existence by its nature. If it's not received from anything outside of itself, it's going to exist by its very essence, right? Its essence and existence are going to be identical if it is existence itself. But it's possible for a necessary being to also receive existence from something else. And in as much as it exists, it doesn't have a tendency to go out of existence. It's incorruptible. So this is what Aquinas means by possible being, think corruptible being, has a tendency by virtue of its nature to go out of existence. Necessary being is an incorruptible being, a being whose nature does not have a tendency to go out of existence. And such a being can either have existence by virtue of its very nature, or it could possibly receive existence from something outside of itself. We're going to look at that in a few moments. So now that we understand what our datum is, or our datum, possibility and necessity, we can begin following St. Thomas Aquinas in the argument that he puts forward, all right? So if you're following along on your handout, I'm going to do my best to stick to the handout, but rather than following each point by point, right, and sort of get lost in the weeds of the formal demonstration, I'm going to do my best to sort of narrate the argument for you. And I'll probably only stick to the major premises of the syllogisms for each step. Because some of the syllogisms that I laid out in the formal demonstration, it, where it's assumed, it's, it's, uh, it's obvious. And I just put them there for a formal demonstration to be thorough about it. But I'm just simply going to be narrating these fundamental points that substantiate the claims that Aquinas is making. So Aquinas starts the third wave from possibility and necessity. He describes these kinds of beings, right? Then he says, here we go with the argument, but it's impossible for these always to exist. 
For that which is possible not to be at some time is not. It's impossible for these types of things, possible beings that is, right? Because he's, he's starting on the supposition, only possible beings. We're going to look at these possible beings here. Tendency to go out of existence. And he's saying it's impossible for these types of things to always exist. So it's possible at some time, it's not. Now, I would suggest to you that not only is Aquinas referring to the possibility for this thing to go out of existence, once it's, once it's existing, it's going to eventually corrupt, but he's also, he also has in mind that such a corruptible being that eventually is going to go out of existence, so it's possible not to be, right? Also, at some time is not before it comes into existence. So as you see on your handout there, this step one, you can basically structure it like this. A corruptible being is either generated or not generated. What do I mean by that? A corruptible being, I have this corruptible being, the flower outside eventually is going to wither, especially at my house because we don't water our flowers very often, right? <laughs> okay. So the flower outside is a corruptible being. It's eventually going to have non-being after it exists. It's going to go out of existence. But a corruptible being either has a beginning and it's generated and comes into existence, right? Or it's ungenerated. That is to say, it's always been existing for an infinite amount of time. Now, I'm going to argue that such a corruptible being, the flower outside, inasmuch as it has a tendency to go out of existence, a corruptible being must be generated. That is to say, non-being must precede its being. A corruptible being cannot be an ungenerated being. In other words, the flower couldn't have existed for an infinite amount of time prior to today. That's premise two in the argument. So a corruptible being is either generated or ungenerated. And I'm going to say not ungenerated. So therefore, a corruptible being must be generated. And that tells us that a corruptible being is possible not to be in the future as it corrupts and goes into non-existence, right? And also in the past, that non-being precedes its existence now. So the question is, well, why would a corruptible being have to be generated? Why can't a corruptible being be ungenerated? And this is basically premise two of step one there in the argument. And basically, here's the bottom line. Here's the gist of it. Think of it like this. I have this corruptible being, the flower, and let's say it's ungenerated. Let's say it's always been existing for an infinite amount of time prior to today. Now, in as much as it has always existed, it's able to always exist. This is a principle in philosophy. From the is of what is, we're able to deduce the can. From is to can. Something that has always existed for an infinite amount of time can exist for an infinite amount of time. Because think about it. If it couldn't exist for an infinite amount of time, would it have existed for an infinite amount of time? No, of course not. So that it has always existed for an infinite amount of time, we're able to conclude and deduce from that it's able to exist for an infinite amount of time. It's, it has the ability to exist at every moment in time, right? Okay, now think about this. Let me ask you this. 
Does a corruptible being, remember the flower, it's eventually going to go into non-existence, right? Does a corruptible, is a corruptible being able to exist for an infinite amount of time? Is a corruptible being able to exist at every moment in time? No, because we know the corruptible being eventually is going to go out of existence and not exist at a moment in time. It doesn't have that ability to exist at every moment of time. So to postulate a corruptible being to be ungenerated is actually to say a corruptible being is corruptible in as much as the flower is going to go out of existence and at the same time not corruptible or incorruptible because if it's ungenerated, that means it's able to exist at every moment in time. So to postulate a corruptible being as being ungenerated is to postulate an incoherent proposition. A corruptible being can be corruptible and incorruptible in the same respect at the same place and time, which obviously violates the principle of non-contradiction. So everything I just said in a narrative form is right there as a formal demonstration under step one. A corruptible being is either generated or ungenerated. I'm arguing that a corruptible being cannot be ungenerated, and so therefore, a corruptible being is generated, which means a corruptible being has non-existence after it exists, in as much as it's going to go out of existence, and non-being before it exists, in as much as it has been generated. Follow me so far? So you've got corruptible being, non-being after, non-being before it exists. And that's going to be key for the next step, all right? So we move to step two. And here's what Aquinas was saying. Here's what Aquinas says. Therefore, if everything were a possible being, if everything is possible not to be, then at one time there could have been nothing in existence. Think about that. Okay, so freeze frame. And all that exists in all of reality are corruptible beings. Corruptible beings, beings which have non-being after they exist, non-being before they exist. And that's all that we have on supposition. That's all we have in our freeze frame. If everything that exists is a possible being, then Aquinas is arguing that at some time in the past, there would have been absolutely nothing. And then, of course, you can start reasoning of why that would be absurd, right? But why is it the case? Why is it the case that Aquinas can say, if everything in existence were possible beings, remember, our supposition, no necessary being, no being that, uh, that must always exist if it exists, only possible beings then it's possible that at some point in the past there was absolutely nothing. How does he arrive at that? Well, think about it, folks. We've already said that a corruptible being must have non-existence both after and before its existence because a corruptible being must be generated, right? Now, think about this. Let's take all of these possible beings that we froze frame, right? We have in our freeze frame, and let's trace the history of these corruptible beings. Let's go back into the past, tracing the history of each of the corruptible beings. And what's going to happen is, as we trace the history of each of these corruptible beings, we're going to eventually 
cross the point for each of these beings before which they began to exist when they were nothing. So corruptible being A, I trace its history back in the past. Well, it had a beginning. It was generated. So prior to that, it was nothing. And maybe B is older. Corruptible being B is older than corruptible being A, right? And I'm tracing its history back into the past. And I come to that point before it existed. And it was nothing. And corruptible being C is even older. And I trace its history back into the past. I come to that point before it began to exist when it was nothing. And then finally, I come to corruptible being D, which is the oldest of the group. Or maybe there's some other corruptible beings that started or were generated at the same time as D. And I come to that point before which D or those corruptible beings that began to exist at the same time were nothing. And so what do I have? What am I left with? Absolutely nothing, because remember, on supposition, we're only considering a corruptible beings existing. Because somebody might say, well, well maybe, maybe, Carlo, when D was generated, because remember, if something is generated, it can only be generated from something else. So maybe when D was generated, there wasn't really absolutely nothing before D, because there was something else in an infinite duration of generation and corruption. But check this out. On Aquinas' supposition, there can be no infinite duration of generation of corruption. Why? Because on supposition, there's no necessary being. There's no being that always exists. And in order to have an infinite duration of generation and corruption, you're going to have to have something that always exists to account for that infinite duration. So what Aquinas is showing is that on supposition that only possible beings exist, only corruptible beings exist, and we trace the history of each of those corruptible beings, at some point in the past, we're going to come to a point before the last or the first corruptible being that it was non-existent. It was nothing. And so this is why Aquinas will say, if all beings existing right now were possible beings, then at some time in the past, there would have been absolutely nothing. And this is Aquinas granting, he's trying to show that on the atheistic position, because remember, the atheist is not going to say past time was finite, because if the atheist says past time was finite, well then he's going to be faced with a creator, right? <laughs> he doesn't want to do that. So what Aquinas is saying is basically, listen, Mr. Atheist friend of mine, if you want to postulate an infinite duration of generation and corruption, you're going to have to have a necessary being, and that's what he's trying to show. If there were no necessary being in all of reality, well, then eventually we would come to a point as we trace the history of each corruptible being back into the past, we would come to that point before which that first corruptible being or a multitude of corruptible beings established, uh, created at the same time or came into existence at the same time, a point before that generation where there was absolutely nothing. So you're either going to be faced with a finitude of past time, right? with this last corruptible being before which it was nothing, or you're going to be faced with an infinite duration of generation and corruption, in which case you're going to need a necessary being to account for it. And that's Aquinas' whole point, to arrive at an, at least one necessary being that exists. So, in summary, if all beings existing right now are corruptible slash possible beings, then at some time in the past, there would have been absolutely nothing. But obviously, there is something right now, right? Uh, on supposition, 
uh, all beings are existing right now. And so therefore, on supposition, there can be uh, it cannot be the case that there was absolutely nothing. So if all beings existing right now were corruptible beings, then at some time in the past, there was absolutely nothing. On supposition, hey, we're granting this, the, the supposed scenario that all are corruptible beings. So in that scenario, there was absolutely nothing in the past. But now we come to step three. Well, wait a minute. If there was absolutely nothing in the past, well, then there would be nothing now, right? And this is Aquinas' next step. If you look on your handout in step three, I give you the text from Aquinas where he begins to argue, if all things were possible, right now, at some time in the past, there was absolutely nothing. But if there was absolutely nothing in the past, well, then there would be nothing now. But obviously, that's absurd because things exist now. And so, therefore, it can't be that all things existing right now are possible beings there must exist at least one necessary being. And basically, what Aquinas tries to do in this step is to give a little brief argument that, okay, let's grant it there was absolutely nothing in the past. And so he's arguing you can't get something from sheer nothingness, right? I mean, if that, the case, if that was the case, man, I would be a rich son of a gun because those $100 bills would be popping into my wallet from sheer nothingness, right? In experience, we recognize, intuit, we intuitively recognize that's absurd for something to come from sheer nothingness. But there's actually, we can actually rationally defend this principle of sufficient reason and this principle of causality, which is connected to the principle of sufficient reason. But fundamentally, we can give a rational defense of why something cannot come from sheer nothingness, because some will even acknowledge, some atheists out there will go so far as to deny the principle of sufficient reason and say, okay, sure, there was absolutely nothing, and we just got something from sheer nothingness, and it's just a brute fact. But in the handout, I give you a validation of the claim. I show you that if at some time in the past there was absolutely nothing, then there would be nothing now because you can't get something from sheer nothingness. And so I give that formal demonstration to you in the handout. But you get the point. If all corruptible beings, then at some time in the past, absolutely nothing. If at some time in the past, absolutely nothing, then there would be nothing now. But there is something now, right? And so therefore, it cannot be that at some time in the past, there was absolutely nothing. And therefore, it can't be that all things existing now are corruptible beings. There must exist at least one being that always exists, having no tendency to go out of existence, always existing, right? A necessary being that that doesn't have anything to its nature to make it go out of existence. And in Aquinas' mind, such a, such a being, such an eternal being, such a necessary being, is what's necessary to account for generation and corruption. So now that he's arrived at at least one necessary being, he asks this question. But every necessary thing either has its necessity caused by another or not. So he's basically asking, okay, this necessary being that we arrived at so far that must be, that must exist in order to account for generation and corruption. 
that necessary being is either going to be caused by something else outside of itself, in which case it would be receiving existence, or it's not caused. So let's look at that. So here on the handout, we're on step four, and we're kind of starting with P9 here. So this necessary being, call it necessary being A. Necessary being A has its necessity either caused or not caused. If this necessary being, call it A, doesn't have its necessity caused, that is, it's uncaused in its necessity, its nature that exists, right? If it's not caused, well, then it's going to have existence per se. It's going to have existence by its very nature. Now, why is that? Well, think about this. If this necessary being were to receive its existence from something else, well, then this necessary being would be receiving its nature, its necessity that belongs to its nature, from something else as well. Not only would its act of existence that distinguishes it from nothing be received from something else, but its very nature and the necessity that belongs to it would be received or caused by something else as well. It wouldn't be just existing by itself or of itself. It would have its existence from something else. But on supposition, remember, Aquinas is saying here on supposition, this necessary being A, supposedly, possibly, is not caused in its necessity. So if it's not caused in its necessity, well, then it's going to have existence per se. It's going to exist of its very nature. Once again, if it's receiving existence, it's being caused in its necessity. Its nature is being caused. But remember, on supposition, this necessary being A is not being caused in its necessity. So it's going to have existence of its very nature. Its nature and being is going to be identical. Its essence and existence, its nature and the act of existence is going to be identical. It's going to have it of its very nature. And my friends, that's God. So this necessary being A that Aquinas arrives at, if it's not caused, then it's God. But if this necessary being, we call it A, necessary being A, if its necessity is caused by another, well then guess what? It's going to have existence per accidence. Its existence is going to be distinct from its nature. It's not going to have existence per se. How do we know that? Well, if it doesn't have existence per accidents, if its essence and existence are not distinct, well, then its essence and existence are going to be identical. It's going to have existence per se. But if it had existence per se, and it didn't receive it from anything else, well, then it would have its necessity by virtue of existing. And if it has existence by its very nature, it necessarily exists not receiving existence from anything else, well, then it's going to have its nature by virtue of the fact that it exists. Its nature and the necessity that belongs to its nature is going to be identical to the act of existence that's making it something rather than nothing. So if this necessary being is not per accidents, doesn't have existence per accidents, it's going to have existence per se. If it has existence per se, it doesn't have to receive its necessity. Its necessity is not going to be caused by something else. But on supposition, Aquinas is hypothesizing, well, this necessary being A, 
does or is caused by something else. And so therefore, it's going to have existence per accidents. And if it has existence per accidents, well, then at every moment it exists, at every moment that essence is conjoined to an active existence, then it's going to need an extrinsic cause to do the conjoining at every moment it exists. And we call that necessary being B, right? So here's what Aquinas is doing so far in this step. He's saying, okay, we got this necessary being A. It's either caused or it's not. If it's not caused, well, then it's going to have existence per se. If its necessity is not received from anything else, it exists by its virtue of its very nature. And the necessity is had by virtue of its existing self. But if the necessity is caused by something else, well, then that necessary being is not going to have existence by nature. It's going to only have existence per accidents. And if per accidents, within well, at every moment it exists, it's going to need another necessary being, call it necessary being B, conjoining its essence to the act of existence at every moment it exists. And so now what Aquinas wants to do in step five is he's going to ask the question, can this series, necessary being A, right here and right now, having its essence and existence conjoined together by necessary being B, can this series of necessary beings extend to infinity? In other words, what Aquinas is asking, can this series of necessary beings, can it exist without a necessary being that has existence per se? We already said necessary being A, if it's caused by another, it has existence per accidents, right? And then we say necessary being B is the one causing necessary being A to exist. But let's say necessary being B also has existence per accidents, not per se. Remember, existence is not going to belong to its nature, like the red doesn't belong to the triangle's essence. Can this series of necessary beings exist without a necessary being that has existence per se? And Aquinas is going to answer no. Why? Because think about it. If no necessary being has existence per se, then no necessary being has existence by virtue of its very nature, right? Okay, that's what we mean here. But if no necessary being has existence by its nature, well, then there would be no source from which each of the necessary beings could receive their existence. Think about it. Necessary being A, does it have existence by nature? No, nope. because remember on supposition, it has it per accident, right? Its essence is not identical to its existence. Well, what about necessary being B? Well, we hypothesize that perhaps it's being caused to by necessary being C, in which case necessary being B has existence per accident, so it doesn't have existence by nature. So if no necessary being in the series has existence by nature, well then there would be no source from which each of these necessary beings could receive their existence. And if there's no source from which each of these necessary beings could receive their existence, well, then no necessary being in the series would exist. And if no necessary being in the series would exist, well, then necessary being A, the one that we arrived at in the first part of the proof, wouldn't exist. 
But we know necessary being A must exist in order to account for the generation and the corruption that we observe in the sensible world. Therefore, the necessary beings in the series, necessary being B, must exist. And therefore, there must be a source from which these necessary beings in the series are receiving their existence. And therefore, there must exist at least one necessary being that has existence per se in order to account for the fact that these other necessary beings in the series have existence. So this is why Aquinas will say that the series of necessary beings that are caused by other necessary beings right here and right now cannot extend infinitely. It cannot exist without a necessary being that has existence per se. And my dear friends, it's either the case, necessary being A, either that necessary being that accounts for generation and corruption, right? Either that necessary being has existence per se, and thus is God, or the series of necessary beings exists, you know, the series of necessary beings that are caused by other necessary beings, right? The series of necessary beings must exist with a necessary being that has existence per se, a being of which essence and existence are identical, at least one, and that's what we call God. Now, I just recently published an article for Catholic Answers Magazine online <laughs> last week where I argued that if a being of which essence and existence is identical, there can only be one. But unfortunately, I don't have time to go into that. So you got to read the article, right? One thing I wanted to mention, uh, obviously we're not going to have time, but for your benefit, I put in the handout, as you see, Roman numeral three, the argument in a shortened version. So I gave you a very succinct, short version of the argument. And then also in Roman numeral four, I actually provided you an alternative version for arriving at a necessary being. So I started the proof, I approached the necessary being in one way, but there's actually another possible formulation of that. And so I provided that for you as well. But unfortunately, we don't have time to go through that. So um, after the little short break here, we'll pick up with uh, wave four. Perfect. Before we get jumping back into the second half, Jerry asked a really good question. I think it might help clarify some things if you'd be able to answer it here, Carlo. He says, our souls have not existed before time. Um, are they then possible slash corruptible being? Uh, step one, C1, says a corruptible being is generated, that is non-being before and after existence. So how is the immortal soul explained considering the third way, step one? Yes, very good question. Well, the, the human soul is, remember, the soul in and of itself is not a whole substance. It is a part of a substance. The substance, the substance is the form matter composite in and of itself. So the soul is the substantial form of the body, the matter. So the human being is a form matter composite. This is why, even in theology, when we talk about the holy souls in purgatory, 
We talk about the souls in heaven. They're actually not human beings per se, because they are only forms, right? The existent or subsistent forms, as Aquinas says, but they're not the form matter composite. So the, the souls, this is why the souls in heaven experiencing the beatific vision are still awaiting the reunification of their bodies, which is that ultimate perfection of the human being to be the form matter composite that the substance is created by God to be. So in as much as the human being, the substance, is a form matter composite left to itself, even the human being will eventually corrupt. And therefore, the human being as a substance must also be generated. Okay? Now, the soul, the form, subsists after the corruption where the human being no longer exists as the form matter composite, but exists in an imperfect way in the afterlife, the soul subsists, but the form matter composite doesn't. And inasmuch as the form matter composite is corruptible, the form matter composite, the human being, is generated. Now, whether or not our souls pre-existed and then God unites to the body or God creates the soul at the moment that the soul informs the matter. We know theologically from God's revelation that our souls did not pre-exist and that God creates us at the moment he informs the matter with the substantial form, namely the soul. But I even think there are good philosophical reasons that we could give that the soul itself, the subsistent form, does not pre-exist the union with the matter, but that comes into existence when the form-matter composite begins because the soul is the form of the matter, the substantial principle that makes the human being a living thing rather than not. So if that's the case, and we can deduce that metaphysically, that the soul is the substantial form of the matter, of the body, making it a living being rather than not, well, then we're able to philosophically conclude that when that, that substance, that form-matter composite, begins to exist as a living thing, so too the substantial form begins to exist as it's informing the matter, so from the moment of conception. So it has to do with understanding the soul as the substantial form in this form-matter composite, what we call a hylomorphic view of material reality and material things, including human beings, since we have matter. But the form, unlike animals and unlike plants, for a human being is subsistent. That is to say, it continues to exist after the decomposition or the separation of the body and the soul. So that's, that's sort of the line of, of thinking that I would take in order to try and address that question. Thanks, Carlo. Why don't we go ahead and jump back in here? All right, so we're going to pick up now what Aquinas' fourth way. Uh, from perfection or gradations of perfection, or you might even say gradations of being, degrees of being, okay? And so Aquinas starts out, the fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. So what is Aquinas talking about here? Well, what Aquinas is using as his starting point or the datum of the fourth way or what we call in philosophy the transcendentals, right? 
We're looking at being, and being refers to something that is rather than it being nothing, right? Being is something that exists, something that's real, something that is. It, it has the isness, right? <laughs> okay? It's the most general concept that we can possibly think of in our minds because being covers everything. The microphone is a being because it's something rather than nothing. The camera is a being because it's something rather than nothing. The computer, the podium, the pen, the chair, and the fact that the microphone is black rather than red. The blackness, even going back to Aristotle and Aquinas and the mind of Aquinas, the blackness of the microphone even has what we call accidental being because it's black. It really is black rather than red or not, not having any color at all. So Aquinas is looking at being, but there are some aspects of being when considered in different ways. So for example, when he, he's talking about when we make the judgment of things being more good than other things, he's talking about being, but under the aspect of what is desirable. And these are the transcendentals. So think of it like this. Uh, the good is that which is perfective of a thing's nature, okay? So anything that's going to perfect my nature, I have a desire for it because all things, as Aquinas says, desire their own perfection. The good is that which is going to be perfective of my nature. That which is perfective of my nature is that which is going to fulfill me and help me to fully actualize my nature, to be fully a human being, Okay. So now, if all things desire their own perfection, and that which perfects a thing's nature is good, then all things desire goodness. All things desire the good. But something can be good for a thing to fully actualize itself in as much as it has been, in as much as it exists. So for Aquinas, following from Aristotle, in as much as something has being and exists, it's desirable in some way. It can be desirable by something for its very own perfection. So for Aquinas, whatever is, is in some way good. There is a connection and a convertibility between being and goodness. The same thing, like for goodness, is the same thing for truth. Truth is being considered in as much as... It has something to it that can be known by an intellect. There's something to the being, that which exists, that has intelligibility that can conform to the mind. Something there in existence, distinct from nothing, that can be known by an intellect. So truth is being in as much as it's considered as its relationship to the intellect. The good is something, being, in as much as it relates to that which is desired, in as much as it relates to an appetite or something desiring that being for its own perfection. So for Aquinas, you have being, and then it has, when it's considered under certain relationships, it has these different aspects we can consider it as. Being as known, that's true. It's called ontological truth in philosophy. Being as desired, I desire that being for my own perfection, that's goodness. 
So these are the transcendentals, and there's one something thing, but we don't have time for those others. But here's the, the gist of the starting point. There are gradations in these transcendentals. So even being itself, for Aquinas, he would say, the substance of the microphone, the microphone itself, has more being than the blackness that inheres in the microphone, right? Because the microphone exists as a being in a way that the blackness does not. The blackness can exist like blackness floating around here, right? The blackness has to exist in the microphone. But yet the microphone can exist right here. So the microphone has more being, the substance has more being than the accidents that inhere in the substance. A corporeal being, something of form, matter, composite, right, has being as well as an incorporeal being like an angel. But for Aquinas, the incorporeal being has more being. We judge it to have more being on the hierarchy of being. It's higher on the hierarchy of being than a corporeal being form matter composite, whereas the incorporeal being doesn't have the form matter composite. In no way is it dependent on the matter like I am dependent upon my body right here to, to exist as a form matter composite. So incorporeal being has more being in Aquinas' mind than corporeal being. Take, for example, the creature, myself. I have being. I exist. I am distinct from nothing. God, we say, is being, right? So we, we take being, we ascribe it to myself, to you, to any creature. We also ascribe it to God. But notice, there's a difference. For us as creatures, our being is constituted by a distinction of essence and existence, right? Two distinct principles conjoined together. But for God, when we talk about being with reference to God, he is being itself. His nature is being. His nature is to be. His essence and existence are identical. So notice here, there are gradations of being. The being of a substance, the being of accidents in the substance, the being of a corporeal being, the being of an incorporeal being, and there's a gradation there. The being of a creature and God as being, there is gradation there. God is the supreme being. We were limited in our being. And the same thing is true with goodness, right? We do this every single day. We make a judgment. We say, hey, yeah, my dog Fido is more good than the plant outside that withered away and died because I didn't water it, right? My dog Fido is more good than the blade of grass outside that I'm letting die because my sprinklers are broken and I can't fix them. We even make a judgment on rational animals being more good than non-rational animals, right? So we say animal life is more good than vegetative life. We say rational animal life or rationality is more good than animal life. We make these judgments, these comparative judgments of something being more good than another. And the reason why is because notice a vegetative being, the, the way in which it exists, it's more limited than a sentient being. A sentient being, an animal, has all of the perfections that the vegetative being has, but it has more perfections, such as self-motion, right? And also sensory powers and sense cognition. But the rational animal, the human being, has everything that those lower beings have, but more intellect and will. 
So notice when we make comparative judgments of some things being more good than others, we're making this comparative judgment about some things have less being than others and even more, some things have even more being than others. And the same thing is with truth. Inasmuch as you have a plant, remember truth is being considered under the aspect as being knowable. Well, you have a plant. There's some stuff to know there, right? But there's more stuff to know about a plant than there is the rock inanimate being versus animate being. When you look at an animal, there's more being there to know, more intelligibility to know than the vegetative or the plant. When you look at the human being, there's more being there. It's more being. It's not as limited as the, the sentient or the non-rational animal and the vegetative being. Human being, there's more being to know. So this is what Aquinas has in mind when he's talking about gradations of being. Moving from more limited to less limited being, less perfections of being to more perfections of being, some things being more good than others, some things being more true than others. What he means by that is that there's more and more being to be known. There's the gradation of truth. There's more and more being to be desired. There's the gradations of goodness, okay? Now, this is his starting point. This is the datum. Now, Aquinas' fourth way, you can divide it up into two parts, because in the first part, he's going to say, when we make these comparative judgments of more and less, it's implying some maximum standard. And then in part two, he's going to say that this maximum standard is the supreme efficient cause, not caused by anything else, of all of the being of the things that are graded more good than another, more true than another. Now, I have to admit that in my research, this is one of the hardest proofs uh, that you can go through to try to figure out what Aquinas is saying. Because in the first part, it seems that his argument is merely dialectical. That is not a metaphysical demonstration. But in the second part, it seems to be a metaphysical demonstration. Because some Thomistic scholars, they'll take that part one, and they'll say, okay, we judge a more and a less when we come to this maximum being, and the maximum being is that efficient cause. And they employ this metaphysical demonstration that I'm going to propose in part two, but they use it to try and explain part one. But it's very difficult to make the metaphysical demonstration of part two fit Thomas's text in part one. So there's one article that I read, and I have it in the introduction handout listed there in the resources. And I, unfortunately, I can't remember the, the name of the article, but it's by Lauer, an author, uh, L-A-U-E-R, and you can check it there in the introductory handout. Uh, Sister Lauer, that is. And Sister proposes that in the first part, it's more dialectical to sort of get the intellect reasoning along these lines. And then in the second part, Aquinas is offering a metaphysical demonstration. So this is the only way that I've come to intellectual satisfaction to approach and tackle the fourth way. Uh, there may be some Thomistic scholars out there that could totally enlighten me on this and show how the first part is a metaphysical demonstration and how it's distinct from the second part. Uh, and I'd be more than happy to consider that. But this is how, where I'm at so far. So I'll propose it to you. Okay. On your handout, we're in part one of the argument. There are two ways we could go about doing this. Consider this. Remember, for Aquinas, 
He's making these judgments. He's saying we make these judgments of things being more good than others, right? So we say that the animal is more good than the plant. The plant is more good than the rock. The human being, the rational animal, is more good, is better than all of the other ones, right? But notice that when we're making these comparative judgments, we're going from more limitation, more limitation of being, to less and less and less limitation of being. Inanimate objects, the rock outside, is lim more limited in its way of existing than the plant outside. And the plant, in its way of existing, is more limited than sentient beings. And my dog, Fido. And Fido has being, more being than the animal, than the plant and the rock, but it doesn't have quite as much as the human being. There's more intelligibility in the human being. There's, there's not as many limitations in its activity, in its way of existing, than it is for Fido. So notice that if there exists a gradation of beings that range from more limited to less limited, then it's at least reasonable that there would be a being that is completely unlimited and in no way is restricted to one mode of being, like in the animal way, rather than some other mode of being, like in the rock way, right? But a being that would be totally unlimited, not restricted to any one of these ways of being, totally outside of all of these restricted modes of being, but would be unlimited, absolutely not restricted. That's one approach. As we ascend up the hierarchy of being, it's reasonable to conclude that we would eventually come to a being that is highest, unlimited in an absolute sense. Now, there's another approach that we can take, and that is to say, in as much as we make these comparative judgments, we make comparative judgments of what is good and what is bad, what is more good than another, in light of some standard, right? So, for example, I drive car A, Brandon here, the videographer guy, drives car B, and I decide car B is better than car A, right? I make a comparative judgment. His car is a lot better than mine. Mine's a rink-a-dink car, his is not, right? But notice that when we make that comparative judgment, we make the comparative judgment insofar as it's being a car, right? Of like what it is to be a car. I might judge oak tree A, to be better than oak tree B, but I do so insofar as they're being oak trees, some standard of what it means to be an oak tree. I judge Brandon's lawn, the grass in his lawn, to be more good than the grass in my lawn. Why? Because mine's brown and dead, his is not, right? But notice I make the comparative judgment based on the standard of being grass and what it is to be grass, right, and healthy grass. But notice I also judge the oak tree to be more good than the grass insofar as being vegetative being. The standard there is vegetative being. Dog A, more good than dog B, insofar as being a dog. Ape A, right, versus or more good than ape B, insofar as being an ape. But I may judge ape to be more good than dog insofar as they're sentient beings because the ape is going to have higher cognitive sensory power, sensory cognition, than the dog does. I judge animal life to be better than, more good than vegetative life insofar as they're animate being. I judge rational 
animal to be more good than non-rational animal insofar as their animate being. But I also make a judgment of angel being more good than human being insofar as their intellectual beings. So notice in all of these comparative judgments, we make them based upon some standard. Now watch this. We also make comparative judgments about modes of being. We say animate being is more good than inanimate being. But notice when we make that judgment, we judge insofar as they are being. Not being in this way or being in that way, but insofar as they're being. So an animate being is more good than inanimate being insofar as being itself. And we would say in philosophy, being qua being, being insofar as it's being. We make a judgment. We say sentient being is more good than vegetative being, animal more good than plant. But insofar as they're being, why? Because the vegetative being is more limited than the sentient being. But we would also make an, a comparative judgment of intellectual being, human beings, angels, to be more good than non-intellectual being, namely animals. Plants, right? Rocks, okay? So, but, but notice we're making this comparative judgment insofar as they are beings itself. We're not saying insofar as they're vegetative being, insofar as they're animate being, insofar as they're sentient being, insofar as oak tree or grass or car. We're simply saying considered as beings as such, intellectual being more good than non-intellectual being. Now, for Aquinas, what he's trying to get at is that the standard by which we're making these judgments is the maximum of the description under which we're making the comparative judgments. So when I, could, when I judge oak tree A to be better than oak tree B, insofar as being an oak tree, I'm thinking in my mind the fullness of what it means to be an oak tree. Or when I'm judging one ape to be more good than another ape, I'm judging insofar as what it means to be an ape right? And the nature of an ape. When I make the judgment of life itself, you know, of uh, animal life being more good than vegetative life, I'm making that judgment based upon the standard of what it means to have the fullness of life, of the nature of life itself. But then I would go to a rational life and I'd say, well, that life is more good than animal life and vegetative life. But I'm making the comparative judgments based upon what it means to have the fullness of life. So the standards that we make our comparative judgments based on is the maximum of the description under which the comparative judgments are being made. Now, when we make these comparative judgments of sentient being being more good than vegetative being, or animate being being more good than inanimate being, or intellectual being, being more good than sentient being and vegetative being. When we make these judgments based on the standard of being, and the standard must be the maximum of the description under which we're making the comparative judgments, then that standard of being would be the maximum of being itself and not the maximum of one particular type of mode of being, like sentient being not the maximum of vegetative being, not the maximum of this mode of being as opposed to some other mode of being, but the maximum of being itself, which transcends all particular ways of being. 
That's why it's called a transcendental. It transcends being as a substance. It transcends being as quantity. It transcends being as quality. It transcends being as oak tree, being as grass, being as vegetative, being as sentient. It transcends all of these distinct modes of being. So this approach says that in as much as we make these comparative judgments more, less, we make them based on a standard. That standard is going to be the maximum of the description under which we make the comparative judgments. But when it comes to being, we actually make comparative judgments about different modes of being themselves insofar as they are being which implies we're making the comparative judgments based upon a standard of maximum being. Now, as I said, I don't think these two approaches are metaphysical demonstrations of a maximum being, but they are dialectical and they give good reason why there would be a maximum being. Now, in part two, what Aquinas wants to do is to establish that such a maximum being does exist. And here's how he's going to do it, right? He says, the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as far as the maximum heat is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. And here's how I have it laid out for you in the handout. If there exists these gradations of being, varying degrees of being, then the things that are graded have being in a limited way, right? So remember, we made the comparative judgment of animals being more good than plants, and then plants being more good than rocks. Inasmuch as we're making comparative judgments, we're grading the being of these things so that plant life is graded. It only has being to a certain degree, more than the rock, not as much as the animal. Inasmuch as we make these gradations, we grade these beings by varying degrees, we know that that being is going to be limited in its being. Right? It exists in this way, not that way, and not in a higher way, such as the animal way or the rational way. So it's limited in its being. It doesn't exhaust the fullness of being. Now, inasmuch, and this goes on to step two there in the, in the formal demonstration, inasmuch as something is limited, we make these comparative judgments, there's grades of being, degrees of being, that tells me these things are limited. Now, inasmuch as something is limited in its way of being, that tells me that it's going to have its act of being per accident and not per se. It's not going to have being to the fullest extent. Because listen, think about a triangle. Does the essence of a triangle have three straight sides to a more or less degree? No. The essence of a triangle has three straight sides. There's no varying degrees of the essence of a triangle having three straight sides. You can't have, a triangle can't have three straight sides to more or less degrees in its very essence. Why? Because three straight sides belongs to the essence of a triangle. But I notice in reality there are these things that have being in graded degrees, right? Varying degrees. 
So that tells me if this thing has being only to a certain degree, limited in its being, well then apparently it doesn't have being by its very essence. It doesn't have being by its very nature. Because if it did belong to its very nature, it wouldn't have it in a varying degree. It would have it to its fullest extent. It would be the fullness of being itself. But obviously, Fido and the flower in my garden doesn't have being to the fullest extent. It's limited. And if it's limited in its being, it doesn't have existence per se. It only has existence per accidents. That is to say, its essence, what it is, is distinct and thus conjoined to the act of existence, which makes it something rather than nothing. So we see gradations of being. If gradations of being, then they're limited in being. If they're limited in being, then I know for sure they don't have being per se. They only have being per accidents. Now, whatever has being per accidents, whatever thing of which its essence, its nature, and the act of being that makes the nature something rather than nothing, whatever has being per accidents, its nature and its act of being are going to be distinct and thus need to be conjoined together at every moment it has being, at every moment it exists by some outside cause. So some extrinsic unifying cause is going to have to conjoin the nature and the act of being at every moment that thing exists, the flower, phyto, you, me, because we're limited in being as well. Now that cause, right, that's conjoining a thing's essence or nature and the act of being at every moment it exists, that cause is either going to have being per se or it's going to have being per accidents. Now if that cause has being per accidents, like the flower, like Fido, like you and me, which are graded in being, which varying degrees of being, if that cause that's doing the conjoining in and of itself has existence or being per accidents, well then it too is going to need a cause to conjoin its nature and its active being at every moment it exists while it's conjoining the nature and the active being of the flower, of you and me, of Fido, and every other thing in the sensory world that's graded in being or has perfection of being to varying degrees. Now, here's the question. Like in the third way, can this series of extrinsic causes that are at once, at here and now, conjoining nature and active being of that extrinsic cause and conjoining nature and active being of the flower and phyto, you and me, every other thing that's limited in being and thus has existence or being per accidents, can that series exist without an extrinsic cause that has being per se? And once again, the answer is no. Because remember, summary here, we have the flower. It's limited in being. That tells me it has existence per accidents. If it has existence per accidents, not by virtue of its nature, it's going to need an extrinsic cause conjoining its nature and its being, its active being together. If that extrinsic cause, call it extrinsic cause A, in turn has existence per accidents, not by its nature, it's going to need its nature and active being conjoined by another extrinsic cause, call it extrinsic cause B, right? Can this series of extrinsic causes exist without a cause that has existence per se? 
And here's why the answer is no. Once again, if no extrinsic cause in the series, which is explaining why the flower's nature is conjoined to an active being right here and right now, if none of these extrinsic causes has existence per se, well, then there would be no source from which these extrinsic causes could derive their existence. And if there's no source from which these extrinsic causes could derive their existence, then none of these extrinsic causes would exist. And if none of these extrinsic causes would exist, then the limited being that we started with, the graded being that we started with, the flower, Fido, you, me, would not exist because there would be no extrinsic cause that is existing in order to conjoin my nature to my active being. But in our sensory experience, we observe these graded beings are existing. And so therefore, the extrinsic causes that are responsible for the conjoining of my essence and my active existence, or the flower's nature and its active being, those extrinsic causes must exist. And if those extrinsic causes must exist, well then that series of extrinsic causes must exist with at least one extrinsic cause that has existence per se, from which the series of extrinsic causes can derive their existence, which enables them to be operating in such a way that the conjoining of the nature and an active being right here and right now for Fido, for the flower, for you and me. And that extrinsic cause that has existence per se is what we call God. So that's the, that is the extrinsic cause that is the maximum of being. Because remember, in as much as it has being per se, not from another, but of its very nature, it exhausts the fullness of being. It is the fullness of being. Because remember, you can't have a, a perfection that is had by nature or by essence cannot be had in varying degrees. So if this extrinsic cause that we've arrived at has being by virtue of its very nature, then it cannot vary in its degree of being. It cannot be limited or restricted in being. It would be the fullness of being, being itself, or as Aquinas would say, ipsum esse subsistence. And that's what we would call God. So notice how in the first part of Aquinas's way, I submit that it, it's dialectical. It's not a metaphysical demonstration. The mind is just sort of approaching this standard by which we judge things in order to say, well, it's reasonable to conclude there would be a maximum unlimited being. But then in the second way, for sure, there is a metaphysical demonstration there to arrive at an extrinsic cause, an efficient cause that has being per se, that explains right here and right now the fact that a limited being, a graded being, the flower, you, me, Fido, exists right here and right now because its nature is being conjoined to an act of being, ultimately by that maximum being that has being per se. That's what we call God. Now, this is a lot of stuff. I recognize I'm sort of flying through this, and I know you're wishing, and I wish as well, that we could stop and just camp out on one of those principles and flesh it out and go back and forth and asking questions. But I'm trying to uh, get through the five ways to simply whet your appetite, and that's all I can do here, right? 
and introduce you to these ways of uh, reading Aquinas' five ways from a metaphysical approach to arrive at a metaphysical demonstration. And that's why we're recording it, and that's why I gave you the handout. So you'll notice that I didn't follow the handout uh, point by point on the fourth way because I'm running out of time, but you have the handout to see the formal demonstration. No holes there. All of the holes are filled in. Walking step by step, walking through the premises of the syllogism so that you can arrive at the conclusions. Finally, we come to final causation or the fifth way. The fifth way from final causation or finality. And basically what Aquinas is saying is this. He writes, the fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And what he means there is the activity that these things engage in by virtue of being the kinds of things they are, are going to produce a specific effect or effects, a range of effects, rather than some other specific effect or range of effects. So these natural bodies act for an end. And this is evident from them acting always or nearly always. That is to say, if nothing impedes them from engaging in their activity in the same way so has obtained the best result. Hence, it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly, do they achieve their end. So, what is Aquinas getting at? Okay, you walk outside, you see the acorns, right? We know that the acorn's activity regularly leads to it becoming an oak tree rather than a banana tree, right? Simple enough. The phosphorus in the head of a match regularly generates flame and heat when it's struck, rather than ice and coldness and the smell of a rose, right? Has a specific, the activity leads to a specific effect or a range of effects, rather than some other effect or a range of effects. The activity of a heart regularly pumps blood and doesn't see. The activity of plants regularly takes in water and nutrients and exhibits growth patterns, and it doesn't talk, right? Now notice, we make sense of this regularity of things, activity, producing certain effects. We make sense of that by saying, well, yeah, because in each of these cases, each thing has an inherent goal-directedness, or what we would say in philosophy, an intrinsic teleology, coming from the Greek telos, which means end or goal. We say that these things... It's characteristic of the thing and its activity. It's characteristic of an acorn and its activity to eventually lead to an oak tree. It's inherent in the thing. It belongs to its very nature, flowing from the kind of thing it is when it acts, the activity that flows from its nature eventually leads to a specific effect. So we make sense of this by saying it has an inherent tendency by virtue of the kind of thing it is, to produce a certain effect by its activity rather than some other effect. And the purpose of the fifth way for Aquinas is to try and to explain the existence of this teleological ordering, this order toward an end that's inscribed in the very nature of things. The fact that the acorn in its activity is going to produce a specific effect, oak tree, rather than some other effect, banana tree, 
He wants to try and explain that. So that's the datum. That's the starting point. What we call an order of finality, an order of final causation. That these effects, that the thing is inherently directed and pointed toward by virtue of its activity, those effects are the final causes. And this gets to Aristotle's four causes of formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, and then the final cause. And so what is Aquinas saying? So first of all, he says, and I'm in step one here in the demonstration, whatever unintelligent being, the activity of which regularly produces a specific effect, has an inherent tendency or determination to produce that effect by its activity. Does that make sense? Okay. So you got something unintelligent, the acorn. By its activity, it regularly produces an oak tree. And what Aquinas is saying is that that acorn has an inherent tendency built into the very nature itself that when it starts doing what an acorn does by virtue of its activity, it's going to produce a specific effect, the oak tree, not some other effect, a banana tree. And then, of course, that's one supposition that there's nothing impeding the activity of the acorn, you know, because you, you might have something come and the acorn dies or doesn't get the water and the nutrients that it needs. It doesn't seed nice into the ground, and so it's not going to produce. So this is why Aquinas will say, well, most always these things produce their specific effects given that, you know, you take the match, right? Strike a match, it's eventually going to generate heat and flame. But if you stick it in some water, huh, well, then obviously it's not going to generate the specific effect by its activity. So this is what Aquinas is saying. Unintelligent being regularly produces a specific effect. That means it's going to have an inherent tendency by virtue of its nature to produce that effect. All right. And you might ask, well, how do you know, Carlo, that if something regularly produces an effect, that it has an inherent tendency to produce an effect. And I give you the formal demonstration in your handout there. Step two, here's what Aquinas is saying. Okay, well, whatever unintelligent being has an inherent tendency or a determination to produce a specific effect rather than some other effect by its activity, it must be directed to that effect by an extrinsic intelligent cause. And that's key right here. He's trying to reason that we have these unintelligent beings, by virtue of their activity, they necessarily are inherently directed to a specific effect. And Aquinas is saying that can only be if there's an extrinsic intelligent cause directing these unintelligent beings to a specific effect by virtue of their activity. Now you might ask, well, why does he conclude that? I give you two ways in your handout to prove this, but here's just one way, okay? Whenever you establish a means to an end that necessarily presupposes intelligence, so for example, think about that. When there's a relationship between a means and an end, it necessarily presupposes intelligence. Think about this. Let's say you have a tower that gets knocked over by the wind. Is there a relationship between the wind and the effect of the tower being knocked over? No, there's no intrinsic relationship. We would say it's accidental, right? And so therefore, no intelligence is needed to connect the wind and the tower falling over. 
that means to an end. There is no means to an end because there's no order. There's no relationship. However, think about this. The builder cuts the material and shapes it in such a way to produce the effect of the tower. Now, there is a relationship and an order between a means, the material, and an end or the effect, namely the tower standing. That means to an end relationship presupposes an intelligence. The builder in his mind has to know the nature of metal and, or whatever material he's using and the nature of the tools that he's going to use to shape the material in order to actualize the foreseen effect or end that he has in his mind, namely the tower standing up. The relationship of a means to an end necessarily presupposes an intelligence. Now, watch this. The inherent tendency that things have to produce a certain effect by virtue of its activity is in relationship of a means to an end. As fire is meant to produce heat, fire produces heat. There is a relationship of a means to an end. The fire inherently is directed to this specific effect, heat, by virtue of its activity. Now, inasmuch as this inherent tendency is a means to an end, inherent in the nature of the thing itself, that presupposes an intelligent cause, right? But notice, all of these intelligent beings, fire, the acorn, they don't have intelligence. But remember, the inherent tendency to the specific effect requires an intelligence. But these things don't have intelligence. So in order to explain the inherent tendency that these things have to generate a certain effect by its activity can only be explained by an extrinsic cause that has intelligence. You see? And there's another demonstration, but this is fundamentally why Aquinas says, Inasmuch, whatever unintelligent being that's inherently directed to produce some specific effect by virtue of its activity, it must be directed to that specific effect as a means to an end by an extrinsic intelligent cause, you see? And now he's arrived at an intelligent being, an intelligent cause that would explain the inherent directedness, the inherent tendency, the goal-orientedness of a particular unintelligent being. You have an extrinsic intelligent cause. And that extrinsic intelligent cause is going to be needing to direct that thing's tendency to a specific effect at every moment it exists. And so now the question is, okay, this intelligent, extrinsic intelligent cause, does it have existence per accidents or does it have existence per se? And we're back to what we were talking about in all the other ways. If this extrinsic intelligent cause that's necessary to make intelligible the very inherent tendency of one particular unintelligent being, if that extrinsic intelligent cause has existence per accident, well then, as we've already reasoned, it too is going to need an extrinsic intelligent cause conjoining its essence and existence at every moment it exists in order to direct the inherent tendency of that intelligent being that we started with. And then, of course, you could ask, well, that would, would, does that extrinsic intelligent cause B, does that have existence per accidents? 
And if it has existence per accidents, then it would need a cause at every moment conjoining its essence and its existence. And then we're off in this series of extrinsic intelligent causes. And so we must ask the question, as we did in ways one, two, three, and four, here again in five, can this series, and keep in mind, this is an essentially ordered series. It's not like a series of grandfather begets father. Grandfather dies, there's father. Father begets son, father dies, there's son. Engaging in his activities. No, the type of series we're talking about here is the series of the microphone being suspended, you know, what, three, four feet off the ground by the podium, which is which is suspending the microphone above the ground because of the foundation of the floor. It's that sort of series that we're talking about. The unintelligent being be inherently directed to a specific effect by its activity, by an extrinsic intelligent cause at every moment that unintelligent being exists. That extrinsic intelligent cause A, if it has existence per accident, it would, it would need an extrinsic intelligent cause B at every moment, intelligent cause A exists, conjoining essence and existence. And so can this series exist without an extrinsic intelligent cause that has existence per se? And the answer is no. Why? Because if no extrinsic intelligent cause has existence per se, then there's no source from which these extrinsic intelligent causes can receive their existence. And if there's no source from which they can receive their existence, then they wouldn't exist. And if they wouldn't exist, then that intelligent being, unintelligent being the acorn, would not be directed to, its in, to that specific effect of it becoming an oak tree. But we observe in the world of sense that the acorn is inherently directed to becoming an oak tree by virtue of its activity. Therefore, the extrinsic intelligent causes doing the directing must exist. Therefore, there must be a source from which these extrinsic intelligent causes receive their existence, because remember on supposition they had existence per accidents. Therefore, there must exist at least one extrinsic intelligent cause that has existence per se, that has existence of its very nature. And it is that extrinsic intelligent cause that is ultimately responsible for all of the directing intellectual activity that's going on in the series of intelligent causes and ultimately responsible for that unintelligent being being directed in its activity to a specific effect rather than some other effect. And that fundamental extrinsic intelligent cause that has existence per se is what we call God. So notice, in the third way, we have a necessary being that has existence per se. In the fourth way, we have a maximum being that has existence per se, unlimited, not restricted in any way. In the fifth way, we have an intelligent cause that has existence per se. And in the first way, we have a first mover that has existence per se. In the second way, we have a first efficient cause that has existence per se. So that, my friends, is how I would approach uh, ways three, four, and five, starting on the physical level and then arriving on a metaphysical plane. 
which allows us to come to the conclusion metaphysically of a first necessary being, a first maximum, a maximum being, a first intelligent cause that has existence per se. And if existence per se, that means essence, existence, identical. Nature, active being, identical. It has existence. Its nature is to be. And that, my friends, is what we call ipsum esse subsistence. Subsistent being itself, or what we say, God. So, yeah, I listen, guys, uh, to be honest with you, I understand it is a lot. And I tried my best to try to encapsulate there, uh, at least tonight, in narrative form, uh, what I could in order to give you the gist of the argument. You have the handouts there, which is a thorough explanation of the formal demonstration of each of these ways, at least how I read the text. There are a variety of differing interpretations of Aquinas' five ways, but so far in my intellectual journey, I am satisfied with the formal demonstrations that I have in the handouts in how to read Aquinas' five ways of the Summa Theologiae. So, Andy? Well, we appreciate your work. I, it's funny. It's like, you know, metaphysics has this stereotype of people who are just thinking like lofty, lofty, lofty and these high, high abstract things. But it's almost as if it's like, it's the art of like finally seeing what's right up in front of our nose. It's yeah. these fine distinctions that seem so subtle we just miss them. Like what you were laying out for us at the beginning of this class, a distinction of we can think about what something is and then we can think that it is. Right. It's something that is so profound, but for whatever reason just passes right by us. We have to slow down in order to let that concept uh, settle in our mind. So thank you for that. We've got a couple questions. Uh, one person is, is writing in here. Can you explain again or from another angle exactly how angels have more being than humans? Yes. So this is one of the, the, one of the most hardest things to grasp our minds around with regard to the transcendentals. As human beings in our intellection, we use quantitative language in order to describe qualities. So something might be more black than another. Even with regard to being itself and the perfections that are convertible with being, we have to employ this quantitative language. Now, the reason why I say that is because we don't want to think that being is restricted to the category of quantity in Aristotle's nine categories of accidents of being or accidental existence. But we're, we're using that quantitative language because we just have nothing else to use in order to describe how something has more being than another. But the idea is this, that notice how as we ascend up the hierarchy of being, there is less and less a need for external activity. The higher up in the hierarchy of being we go, the more imminent things are. The activity is going to be more intensive. So if you start with a plant, that plant, all of its activity is like just totally dependent upon everything that's coming from the outside world. When you move up to sentient beings and animal beings, they have everything that the plants have, but they have a little bit more. Their activity is a little bit more imminent, inasmuch 
as animals are able to take in sensory forms. Like an animal doesn't know the intellectual form of a tree, like tree nests, but the animal is able to cognitively, sensory cognition here, be aware of that thing right there. Smells like this kind of thing and it tastes like this. And, and in, in its sensory memory, it can remember like this tree, you know, when I started biting on its bark in order to scratch my teeth, right? It had a certain taste. And this thing right here is a, is a good spot to go to the restroom and relieve myself, right, at Fido, okay? And so Fido has these sensory form, sensory cognition. And so there's a sense, there's more eminence in that activity than there is in the plant, which has no sensory cognition. There's nothing going on internally on a cognitive level whatsoever. Now, when we go to rational animal or human beings, the eminence of the activity is more than the other types of beings. Because when we begin to engage in intellectual activity, yes, we start from the senses and we start from phantasms and images, but we're able to abstract the forms of things and then begin to even construct intellectual concepts that are in no way depending on the phantasms anymore. And this is what we do in syllogistic reasoning. We're reasoning from one concept to another, right, in the world of the intellect, which is more imminent and is no longer, you know, having to take in stuff from the outside world. And then the angels, well, they have no bodies. They have no activity that's reliant in any way on things in the outside world. So we're relying on things in the outside world, but in a less degree, a lesser degree than animals. Animals rely on the outside world, but in a lesser degree than plants. The angels, they don't rely on anything from the outside world for their activity. So this is one way in which philosophers explain the hierarchy of being of how the being of angels is less limited than the being of humans and the being of non-rational animals and the being of vegetative life. It's less limited because it's more intensive. It's more imminent, less reliant on things outside of itself. And so when you get to God, God is not reliant on anything outside of himself whatsoever. The angels, they're relying on things outside of themselves because they're relying on God in as much as they have their existence or their being from God. But God, who is ipsum esse subsistence, being itself, existence per se, is not reliant on anything outside of himself whatsoever. And so this is what we mean when we say how angels have more being than humans and animals and, and God being the fullness of being as opposed to creatures where their being is limited in one form rather than another in varying degrees. Angels, each angel having a distinct mode of being because there's no genus of angel, right? So each angel having a distinct mode of being, one more less limited than another or one more limited than another 
and on down the hierarchy of things. So that's the approach that I would take for that question. Perfect. Someone's writing in here. Um, James is saying these steps often start as deductive logic, then end with a summary and in inductive leap. Is there any other way to close the loop and make these arguments more convincing? I'm assuming your handouts are going to be the much more, like you were saying, that's where the validity of the argument is laid out in much more detail. So James can go ahead and just look at the handout. Would that be right, Carlo? Yes. I mean, the, the, the syllogisms uh, that are presented in the handout are deductive metaphysical demonstrations. So each, I, what I tried to show is that each of the premises are true. I mean, some are just taken from obvious, you know, it's just obvious, right? But the major premises that need to be substantiated have formal demonstrations in them of modus tollens, right? Using modus, if A, then B, not B, therefore not A. And each of those individual premises in the formal demonstrations of a particular premise, if need be, or further substantiated as well. These arguments are not inductive in the sense of saying, well, okay, I got one thing, I got another thing, well, then it's probably true that the conclusion follows, right? These are not probable arguments. We're starting from sensory experience, like an unintelligent being directed to this specific effect. But as we approach these sensible things and apply reason, we're able to deduce from these sensible things certain metaphysical principles, act, potency, essence, and existence. And given those metaphysical principles, we're able to deduce from that other things, which ultimately leads to the deduction of an absolute uh, cause of these various perfections that has existence per se, which would be metaphysically necessary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Bob writes in here, he says, an angel is created but is not going to go out of existence. Um, how does St. Thomas Aquinas explain this? Yes, well, an angel is created, but it's not generated, okay? Generation has to do with matter form composites. Generation has to do with material things, corruptible things, okay? So, hypothetically, a creature, like an angel, could, given its nature as a necessary being, right, given Aquinas' understanding of a necessary being, there's nothing to the nature of Gabriel that would determine it to have non-existence at some moment in time or something. It's necessary. It's a necessary existence. Given the fact that it exists, there's nothing there to determine that there would be a time when Gabriel doesn't exist. So hypothetically, Gabriel could have always existed. And this is what Aquinas talks about in his work when he is arguing against certain philosophers who would try to argue that you cannot have an infinite pastime on the eternity of the world. Aquinas gives a very persuasive argument that there's nothing to created being that necessitates the created being, such as an angel, have a beginning or be created because you could have a necessary being of which essence and existence are for an eternity conjoined by God himself. Just like the lamp that sheds, shines light and illuminates the paper, there's nothing in that relationship of effect, illumination of paper, to cause lamp 
that necessitates the light began to shine. For an eternity, the light shining could have been illuminating the paper. So too, a necessary being, such as an angel, hypothetically, could have existed without being created, uh, without a beginning, that is to say, right? A necessary being like an angel could have always existed without a beginning and always will exist, but yet still be created inasmuch as its essence and its existence is conjoined for an eternity by God. Now, how do we know that angels had a beginning? And that is through revelation. That's the only way that we can know that. So there's nothing that belongs to the nature of an angel that would necessitate it having a beginning, coming into existence by the creative act of God. It could have always existed. But even then, it would still have its essence and existence conjoined by God, the creator. So the idea is, what Aquinas' third way is starting with is generation, which has to do with material beings, beings that have a form and matter composite. Those types of beings have non-being after and have non-being before. But a necessary being that's not a composite of form and matter, those types of beings don't necessarily have to come into existence. They could always exist, but yet still be sustained in existence by God himself. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carla. We appreciate the time you're spending with us here. Thank you all so much, guys. God bless you all. Thank you, Carla. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.